language. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love you. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Great stuff. Good way to start off the day. All right, let's see here. I'm going to read you a couple of prayer requests. We got Ron, who comes on Sunday. Uh, he's come once or maybe twice on Sunday morning, but he attends online on Sunday morning. He's got walking pneumonia. And then we have Renee uh, and Macklin. Um, we need prayer for them. Macklin is a young girl with open heart surgery. And, um, oh, yes, okay, I remember that. Uh, also, um, a niece who needs Jesus traveling in a spiritually dark part of the world. Can't give her name or where in the world because it would be kind of obvious, apparently. And then uh, Zane. Little child was born 24 weeks at two pounds, four ounces, and definitely need prayer for premature baby. And then Janae has wrist and neck pain. She's coming up on her third surgery for her neck. And I got to tell you what, the description of the surgery was horrifying, what she's got to go through. She's in constant pain in her life, so we want to pray for her. And then um, uh, this is kind of a touching one. Uh, friend of mine in California, she's praying for a good new home for Jake, her horse. It's a spirited pinto, and she she needs to find it a home that can handle a spirited pinto. So, yeah, she wants to end uh, patience in the sales process because she's, she says it's a stressful thing doing that. And then finally, we have Jack Colvin, who's always here uh, on Sunday morning, and they attend usually online on Thursday night, but he's not attending tonight. He just got out of surgery for a uh, uh, blockage in his intestines and so uh, we want to just pray for all those folks and anybody else that, uh, that has problems and so we'll do that right now Heavenly Father we do thank you for the chance to come to you and you've heard of all of these requests here and there are more that I certainly failed to write down and uh, include but we pray for them and we pray for uh, uh, brother Blake he uh, isn't here but he would like to be here and uh, we'd pray that you would make his uh, ability to attend uh, smooth and maybe something coming up in the next month that'll help him with that and certainly other things in people's hearts and in their lives and on their minds that uh, are difficult and so we pray for them as well and we also pray certainly for our president who is continuing to just face the demons against him and he's he's doing his best to lead this nation and he's doing it in a way that is uh, uh, you know almost tireless in his in endeavor to get things straightened out here and he's got a short amount of time to do it and we would pray that you would continue to be with him as he continues to drain the swamp of wickedness in our government and lord we pray for this class and we pray that you would bless it and just uh, we would pray that we would not divert from a sound interpretation of your word and we thank you for this precious gift that you have given us we thank you for it in jesus name amen, amen. okay we have uh, one year Christian history today must be the 5th of July because yesterday was the 4th of July which is Independence Day so there you go I did not even hear at the uh, usually they wake me up I go to bed at 8 and they go off about 9 15 or whatever and 
I didn't even hear them last night. It's been the longest, longest week. I mean, just non-ending. But anyway, uh, let's see here. July 5th. You never know how God will bring fruit from your life. God used the influence of Robert and James Haldane, two Scottish brothers, to reach all the way to Africa. Converted in 1795, they began to preach throughout Scotland. James Haldane preached in Edinburgh for years after ministering in Scotland. Robert Haldane went to Geneva, Switzerland and began, began a student Bible study. Most of the students attending became preachers used by God to bring a religious awakening to Switzerland and France. This revival gave birth in 1822 to the Paris Evangelical Missionary Society. As Robert Haldane lay dying in 1842, little did he know how the streams of his influence would converge on a little boy then tending turkeys on a French farm. One of Robert Haldane's students in Geneva was Amy Boast, who became a pastor of a church, Ami Boast is his name, pastor of a church in, I can't pronounce it, somewhere in France, originally founded by John Calvin. In the church was Mr. Col Mrs. Collier, a poor widow with seven children. She had dedicated her youngest son, Francois, to the ministry, but as a six-year-old, he had to herd turkeys to help support the family. When Ami Bost came to the church, his preaching kindled a passion for foreign missions in the impressionable young Francois. At 17, Francois admitted to a training school for young men without means. The founder and director was Mansour Jacquet, a man of great faith whose motto for the school was, the Lord will provide. One Sunday, instead of his usual dry sermon, Jacquet read a tract that ended with the question, wheat or chaff, which art thou? Francois was tormented by the question, wondering what it meant. He struggled for days, unable to grasp the concept of belief. He later wrote that finally a ray of light flashed into my night of anguish. He saw that to believe means to accept God's salvation through Jesus Christ without reservation. A peace previously unknown flooded his soul, and the experience colored the rest of his life. After attending university, seminary, and missions school, Francois asked to be sent to a place where no missionary had gone before. Sounds like enterprise, right? Going to where no, okay. Anyway, the Paris Evangelical Mission Society assigned him to, wow, Bas, Basuto land, I guess, the modern kingdom of Lesotho in South Africa. Before leaving for Africa, Francois spoke at a mission meeting in Paris, and a young Scottish woman named Christina McIntosh was in the audience. When she was a child, her family had attended the Church of James Haldane, and under his influence, Christine's father became a minister himself. As Christina listened to the enthusiastic young missions recruit, a deep desire awakened to do missionary work herself. When the two met after their meeting, it was, of course, love at first sight for Francois, but he was too shy to give any hint of his feelings. When the young missionary arrived in Africa in 1857, clean-shaven and eager to begin, the Africans immediately informed him that no one would listen to a man without a beard and a wife. Well, I've got both those down, so that's, wow, okay. At once he began growing a beard, good job. But securing a wife was a greater challenge. Right away, he thought of the lovely Christina McIntosh. And after much prayer, he followed the French custom of writing a mutual friend to propose marriage to her for him. Six anxious months later, Francois received a letter saying that she didn't know him well enough. He waited two years, long years, before trying again. 
This time he wrote to Christina directly. When she received his letter, she experienced a peace from God that this was indeed his will for her life. On July 5th, 1860, Francois received her reply. She sailed for Africa and they were married in 1861. Francois and Christina Colliard served together for 30 years until her death in 1891. The culmination of their fruitful years of service was the founding of mission stations along the Zambia or Zambesi River in modern Zambia. The fruit of the Haldane brothers reached halfway around the world. The more than two millennium, uh, two million evangelical Christians in Zambia today are part of the fruit of their labors. And they ask, God has purposes of which we know nothing. If we are afraid, if we are faithful to Him, He may use us to accomplish purposes we could never have dreamed. Our responsibility is to trust and obey. The results are up to Him. So there you go, and they quote Isaiah 55, verse 8, My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. So, great stuff there. And then we have something from finished up table talk. Obviously, on the 1st of July, we got a new table talk. And the very first article, I don't have to go through all the nonsense in here, but uh, the first article was, um, I'm going to just read a little bit of it. A guy went to a, a uh, evangelical you know, meeting, and the pastor there asked something. He said, um, he said something that astounded me. He invited all those first who had received Christ to come forward, and people came forward to receive Christ. And then he invited those who were Christians, but who had never become disciples of Jesus Christ to come forward. And he said, to my astonishment, many, many believers, some of whom I knew well, made their way to the front, thinking that the principal moment they were becoming disciples of Jesus Christ for the first time. And then uh, he goes down a little bit and he says, however, Jesus allows for no such distinction in the Gospels. Okay, he goes down a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, he uh, talks a few uh, paragraphs and he gets, I'll get to the very end. He says, true saving faith is the faith that compels us to follow and obey Christ as disciples. Is that true? Absolutely not. I've read 2 Peter 1 verses two through nine a million times. There are people that are truly saved that forget that they were saved at all. They did not apply their doctrine to their Christian conversion. Doesn't mean they're not saved. It simply means that they did not follow the steps. So he's wrong here. Now he says, um, uh, and he's talking about almost as a, if it's a heresy. He says, um, uh, uh, true saving faith. Oh, going back to what I said earlier, it says, however, Jesus allows for no such distinction in the gospels. What's the problem with that? The Gospels. The Gospels, yeah. No, that's telling the work of Jesus, talking to Jesus under the law to the Jews that are under the law. They have nothing to do with after crucifixion and resurrection doctrine. They have nothing to do with it. So, of course, Jesus said certain things about, you know, you got to lay down or pick up your cross and follow me and all of these things is because he hadn't yet been crucified. So he's giving them a point. This is what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven apart from me right? Okay, then he goes on. Um, I am afraid that much of what we might call evangelical Christianity has lost this important truth. Many have been deceived into thinking that because they prayed a prayer or signed a card or walked in an aisle that they are guaranteed etern eternity in heaven. So he's saying that this little card or something is he's knocking it. The conversion of a person, and I might as well go straight to the word just so you don't think I'm making this up. The conversion of a person to Jesus Christ, meaning that you are now saved, 
doesn't follow what he says at all. It, this is it, folks. I could take you to, um, uh, what is it, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and give you some of the information. I'm just going to skip that. I'm going to go straight to Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved after you become his disciple. It doesn't say that. It just simply says you will be saved. The key is in your heart. That's that's right. But I'm reading. No, 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 no. I'm reading what the Bible says. Okay. It, that's I'm reading what the Bible says. Don't get into semantics here. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what Paul says. That is a requirement for being saved. And then he explains it. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So it's what you said. But I'm not going to get into this person believed with his heart and this person didn't believe with his heart. That's not my job. My job is to tell you what the Bible says. If you believe with your heart and you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It doesn't say anything about discipleship. It doesn't say anything about picking up your cross and carrying any of that. You have picked up Christ's cross when he died for your sins. That is what you are believing. You're believing the gospel message. You are saying, I received that Jesus Christ died in my place. He fulfilled that law that he's been talking about to this people of Israel. And now I want to accept what he has done in my place. Okay. Now there is all kinds of stuff that Paul writes about being a disciple, how we do that, what we should do. Okay. When we don't do it, he gives consequences. He says, kick them out of the church if they're doing this and rebuke them sharply if they're doing that on and on. That is where doctrine comes from. But salvation is Romans 10, 9 and 10. That is salvation. And then I'll take you one more because I said that I mentioned it and I don't want to skip it. But he says here in uh, uh, Romans 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved. Verses 15, uh, verse 1, and now I'm in verse 2. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on and talks about all the people that heard that. But the, the gospel is he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again, right? That's it. And then what he says in Romans 10 is that if you believe that message, you will be saved. Okay, and then what does he say in Ephesians? Because I say it every single class. I don't think I've ever done a class where I've been brought this verse in. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Somebody tell me what, hap what happens after you believe that sealed. you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee. guarantee. A guarantee. It's not a maybe. It's not a anything. It is a guarantee of your future redemption. Okay, so I'm going to finish this paragraph. We'll be done with Table Talk for a month. Okay, I mean, the, the, the second one you read is Corinthians, not Romans. Oh, did I? Uh, yeah, I said 1 Corinthians 15, and then I said, I'm going to take you to Corinthians. Yeah, okay. So I said it early. I don't know what I said the second time. Anyway, but yes, Romans 10 and then 1 Corinthians 15. Thank you if I did say it wrong the second time. Um, okay, so he says, many have been deceived into thinking that because they prayed a prayer or signed a card or walked in an aisle that they are guaranteed eternity in heaven. Like you said, signing a card doesn't save you. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. It is belief in your heart that saves you. Okay, so however they get to that point. That is what matters. It doesn't, all these other little things about praying a prayer or that signing a card, that's all stuff that churches add in. That's nothing. Paul expects something from us in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Okay, but regardless of that, but Jesus, here's, here's the point that I'm making, regardless of how they believe in their heart. He says, Jesus demands something more 
Jesus demands that we trust him with our very lives. Jesus demands that we follow hard after him. And then he cites Luke 9, verse 23. Once again, going to the Gospels, taking things out of context, out of post-crucifixion, resurrection context. And he says, in short, Jesus demands that we be his disciples. Jesus doesn't demand that at all. He asks us to be his disciples. First, he says, trust me. And then he says, and be a disciple of me. But 2 Peter 1.9 proves that he does not demand that of us. He saves us, and then he asks us to do the things that we will grow in. And when I say he, he's writing through the hand of Paul and the other apostles by doing that. But we get our doctrine from the letters of Paul in this church age dispensation. That is where we get our doctrine from. And when people go mixing that up and taking the gospels and mixing them in, you will always, always, not sometimes, you will always have convoluted doctrine. Always. Because it'll say one thing here and it'll say something seemingly completely contradictory here. In which you choose for who you're speaking to at any particular time. You can't do that. As I said, it's a very easy verse to remember is, uh, pray that you may be found worthy to stand before the Son of Man. That's nowhere in the Gospels. You receive Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God as a promise, a guarantee, and you are worthy. Not because of yourself, but because of Jesus. Taking that verse from Jesus' mouth, who he's speaking to the people under the law, and then taking what Paul says, you have 100% contradiction. There is no need to pray that you stand worthy before the Son of Man. You are worthy because you believed in your heart and you accepted what Jesus Christ did. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That is the gospel. The, the belief in Romans 10, 9 and 10 is defined in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3 or 4, whatever I just read there. So there you go. I... I, I, I bring that up because this is the kind of thing that you're not just going to see in Table Talk magazine. You're going to hear it in churches all over the place. People get their little pet peeves that are out of context and they hold them up and you can't do that. This book must be taken in context. Um, one more quick thing we'll do today, as we always do, is Article 13 of the Chicago Statement of Faith. And it is, and then we're going to be in Romans 12, 6 in about two minutes. We affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. I'll read it again. We affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. They're saying that words have meanings, and this word is what we are using to define this doctrine. We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to the standards of truth and error that are alien to its use, usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. Okay, what they're saying is Paul will say, um, this says this in the book of Isaiah, and he makes what's called a free citation. He loosely cites the, the verse in Isaiah in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it may not resemble it 85%, but he is giving you a theological truth in that free citation, which is pertinent to our salvation and our doctrine. Okay, 
That does not mean that there is not inerrancy in Scripture because of that. Another thing that they say they deny is, let me read it again, they give about 10 of them. I'm only going to go through a couple. Uh, is negated by biblical phenomena such as a lack of modern technical precision. Well, something in science today may be, um, uh, this is um, uh, gold, we call it gold in the Old Testament, and maybe it's gold and platinum mixture, okay? I, I'm just making that up as an example, okay? And so we have a spectrometer that can say that that gold actually has um, non-gold elements in it. And you can only get to 99.99% pure gold. You can't get to 100% pure gold. That doesn't mean that it's not gold, so, but somebody could use that as an argument. And another one that they use is... Um, observational descriptions of nature give me one from the bible that is actually incorrect the sun rises okay that is technically incorrect because the the earth spins on an axis and the sun doesn't move in relation to us it's just the earth spins every 24 hours and so the sun looks like it's rising why is that not an error it's because the bible is written from our perspective. God is giving us something so that we can understand his workings. It doesn't mean that it is not inerrant. It does not mean that it is not inspired, and it does not mean that there is error in the text. The sun does rise from man's perspective, and the whole Bible is written for man to understand what God has done. That's the type of thing they're talking about. There's about 10 of them. If you want to go through, type in the Chicago Statement of Faith, Article 13, read it again, and just look at each one of them. Think them through, and you will find that they are correct in what they have said. Okay? Everybody got that? Good. Here we go. Um, did anybody here lose this on Sunday? Something for I... I Okay, well, I'll ask on Sunday then, too, because somebody left something here. Yeah, that was a great shot. Yeah, hey, uh, that's because I can't see a thing with these glasses over there. And so, anyway, um, okay, we're going to go to Romans 12, 6. No, 4. 12-4. That's, yeah, 12-4. I was just checking to see if you were paying attention. That's all. Just as, okay, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. Okay, he's going to use the body now. And he is, this is a wonderful thing. I don't know if we're going to get through the whole body part, but it is It is wonderful logic that he uses. Just like, once again, this is something that they would say, we deny this in the Chicago Statement of Faith, because he's going to give some body things, and it may not be actually 100% correct. This part of the body in the Bible is used to uh, uh, speak about thinking. Well, the heart doesn't think, right? But wisdom is in the heart. That's not an incorrect. That's just the way that we perceive it. What do we use heart for? Emotion. Emotion. Thank you. In uh, the modern Western society, we use the heart for thinking of love and emotion and that kind of thing. doesn't mean it's wrong. It's being, it, it's an analogy, okay? Because when my heart hurts, that's, my wife is mad at me and I've offended her or something, right? So once again, there you go. He's using the body. We'll go on from there. Using the human body as a representative of the different offices of the church, Paul will draw it a comparison for us to more readily accept our station within the body. He begins with the word for. Okay, once again, go through and highlight your uh, your prepositions, and it will help you as you're going through the Bible to understand when he's making a change. They don't always match in the English, though. Okay, I want you to understand that. Sometimes they'll put a for where it doesn't actually belong, but even then it'll help you because the translators usually do a pretty good job of it. Anyway, um, he begins with for, and so he shows that this is tied into, not separate from, the preceding verse. In that verse... He spoke of the grace he received and the grace each member of the church also received. Has everybody here received grace? Have we all received the same grace? The same measure of grace? 
No. Okay, we've all received the same grace of salvation in Christ, but we haven't received the same measure. We, uh, I may have been given a grace of um, incredibly good looks, and somebody else might. Anyway, that was a joke. Nobody <laughs> laughed. Okay. Anyway, um, so uh, he begins with um, in that verse he spoke of the grace he received and the grace that each member of the church also received as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So faith is considered a grace to Paul in that context. Based on this, he notes now that just as we have many members in one body, so does the church. Paul will use this same thought several times in his writings, such as in Ephesians 4 and 5, but he will use it in the most expressive and telling way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. To get a fuller uh, picture of Paul's thoughts here in Romans, it would be good to take time to read that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and see how he speaks about the body there. We're not going to divert um, but go read that and it'll tie the two thoughts in together for you. He has surprising insights for those who think more highly of themselves than they ought. Okay, that's one of those verses that I love to think about when I'm, I'm driving down the road thinking about how great I am at one thing or another and then I suddenly slap myself mentally and I say, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, right? You know, I went out and I did something really great and and I, I, it's the best lawn job in the whole world in front of them all, and everybody's going to like it, and I slap myself. Whatever, whatever, you know. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. You got a great car? Who cares, okay? If you've got a, a, uh, a great motorcycle, okay, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Whatever the thing is that you have or that you can do that you possess, be humble about it, okay? And that includes the things you do at work, the things that you do for other people, don't think more highly of yourselves than you are. Okay, anyway, within the church, like within the human body, no two parts are the same. Although some may have the same function, right? Okay. Is this the same as this? It's the same hand, but it's a right hand and a left hand, right? We, they have the same function, but no two parts are actually the same. Okay. Uh, Paul will use uh, this. Uh, it's the same with the church. We have, oh, I'm sorry. Where was I? Yes. Um uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Next paragraph. Okay, same function. For example, the left hand functions with basically the same roles as the right hand, but each is used to perform that function individually in order to meet the needs of the body. Eyes, feet, and elbows likewise mirror each other, but were given more than one in order to meet the body's needs. Right? Have you ever closed one eye and looked here, and then you open that eye and you look here, and it your hand looks in a different position. It's meeting a need so that when you look out, you can focus better, right? If you only have one eye, you've got to, your brain has got to rewire itself in order for you to figure out exactly what's going on. It takes a while. Chop off one of your big toes and you're not gonna be able to walk properly, right? You've gotta to learn to walk again without that toe. I know because my uncle got his toe chopped off years ago on the way over Siesta Key Bridge. He was on a moped and he got it stuck in the, uh, this is back in the, the 50s, I guess. And so he, he had to, learn how to walk again. They actually thought that he'd never walk again. Remember that, Uncle Harry? So anyway, um, uh, yeah, so anyway, eyes, feet, elbows, likewise mirror each other, but we're given more than one. There, there, then there are greater distinctions. There are external organs and there are internal organs. There is the skeletal system and the epidermis. What is the epidermis? All right, skin, epi, right? On top of or over. Right? And then dermis is the layer of skin. So you have epidermis. Greek, you know you're Greek, you're going to know where the words come from. Okay? The largest organ in the body, the epidermis, the skin. Absolutely right. It's like 15 pounds of, yeah, um, there you go. Um, so uh, let's see. And I went to the skin doctor today. 
like, you know, every two years in Florida, you're supposed to go for your checkup. And she, you know what she said? I was so embarrassed. You know, they, they, they really check you. <laughs> I, I, I was just in the, the other nurse could see how shy I was. And she was just laughing at me. <laughs> she couldn't help it. You know, and I, I could see her in the mirror. But anyway, here's her, her answer. She says, you have really nice skin. Oh, I yeah. Yeah. She said I, I made me feel good because I just feel like I'm gross. But anyway. Um, OK. So anyway, skin, skin. There's a skeletal system. There's an epidermis. Uh, the list goes on and on. Each part of the body selected by God to meet a particular need and to perform a particular function. As Paul says, not all have the same function. If you are a foot and not a hand, do you feel less important than the hand? Again, take time to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you may find that being a foot isn't so bad after all, right? What does it say about the feet in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? No, it's not there. It's in Romans. Anyway, there's some reason why I put that in there. But go read 1 Corinthians 12. Yeah, but anyway, the foot is the only part of the body that's actually described as beautiful in the Bible, which is actually it's not true because they say she has beautiful eyes and stuff. But I'm talking about when you're talking about in a general sense, not a particular sense. So there you go. Life application. The pastor of a church will only be as effective as, as the body. That's right. It has nothing to do with the pastor. He can be a really great preacher. He can be a really smart guy, whatever. But if the body isn't helping him out, he will never excel in a church. It's not going to happen. The other members of the church make it, okay? If the person who cleans the bathroom does a crummy job, it will reflect on the pastor. If the pastor does a crummy job and is preaching, there won't be any members coming around to use the bathroom. The church is structured like the body, and each part needs to properly perform its task. Not with boasting, but with humility. With Christ as our head, let us exalt our head, right? That's the only place where our, our real praise should go. Verse 12, 5. So, in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Okay, that kind of goes with what I just said about it. If you have one part and one part and they're not working together, it, the whole thing doesn't work well, okay? Using the previous verse as a reference, Paul says, so we, speaking of all of us Christians, just as there are many members in one body and just as the members have their own unique function, which differs from the others, so it is with all those in Christ. There are many in Christ and yet each has a unique role. We could argue that there are lots of pastors, but each pastor has a specific flock. Or even if the pastors are in the same congregation, which does happen at times, they will minister at different times and to different individuals and for different reasons. There may be many door greeters, but each door greeter greets different people, and so they do it in a unique way, right? Who's the best door greeter of any church in the history of the universe sitting in the back of this church right here? Tom Alley. There's no finer door greeter that you will ever meet in the history of the universe. He remembers everybody's name. Everybody's name. He remembers their kid's name. He remembers their aunt's name. He, okay, maybe not. But he, he, there is no finer door greeter anywhere. And it's not for the superior word. That would not be a tough job doing it here, I can tell you. But he attends a very big church and... Uh, Anyway, so there you go. Anyway, no matter what the uh, member does, all are members of one body in Christ. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, we are told that Christ is the head. I mentioned that a minute ago. This doesn't mean that he is literally the head, as if one is looking at a person's head. Rather, head is speaking of his leadership and preeminence. With Christ in this position, every member, many, 
comprise the body in an individual role, which is uniquely united to all others. We are all members, as Paul says, of one another, okay? In Christ, the saying is true that no man is an island. Thank you. We are bound to each other under the headship of Christ and have importance and value. That means every single person who comes to the church has importance and value, whether they exercise that or not. Is I, I wrote about it, I think it's in Titus. I just finished Titus today, and we're starting Philemon tomorrow morning, bright and early, 4 o'clock, that uh, Philemon 1-1 will come up. But um, I said somewhere, where did I say this? Um, oh... I can't remember now. Okay, I, I don't want to say it and then have the wrong thing and have people go looking for it. Anyway, um, we all have importance. We all have value within the church. Oh, um, seat warmers. It was. It was in the end of Titus where you can sit in a seat and you can do absolutely nothing, right? You're pointless. Absolutely pointless in a church. If all you're doing is seating, heating up a, a seat, unless you got somebody that has a disease where they need to be kept warm and you move for them, you're not doing anything. We all have an ability to do something in a church if we're willing to do it, okay? But I would argue, because I don't want to put a guilt trip on anybody here, that the people that are sitting in this church right now are doing the most important thing that they can do within the church, and that is to learn, okay? I, I, even if you don't do anything else for the church, people that actually come to sermons and people that actually listen to Bible studies, and I'm including people online as well, they are actually doing about as important of a job as you could possibly have. Because if you're not learning, then you're the guy that I was arguing against in this thing a couple minutes ago, okay? You are a saved believer, and you're not a disciple, and you're not doing anything. You're not growing. You're not maturing. You're not able to talk to anybody about Jesus. It, it, it's a pointless existence. But if you are in a Bible study, I think that you're fulfilling a role that very few people actually do. And if they go to Bible studies, I don't think that they really spend the time getting deep into them there's a lot of, i've been to a lot of bible studies in my life and there have been a lot that have just been fluffy, fluffy. thank you thank, fluffy who are you <laughs> fluffy that sounds like a dog's name but it's a good word anyway um and i'm not belittling all bible studies because there are a lot of good bible teachers out there there are a lot of them but they are the ones that usually have less people in them it's the fluffy ones that seem to do better anyway um uh okay where were we adore greeters and members of okay yeah uh, no man is an island um, I'll read that again. We are bound to each other under the headship of Christ and all have importance and value. However, far too many allow their role to be more like a fingernail than a finger, finding it sufficient to be attached to the body, but only of use in a minimal way. Being a member of Christ's church indicates that we should put forth effort in order to exalt the head. Like I said, the fingernail actually does nothing. It has to be used as a tool by something else. And you got something in your tooth, you're going to use your fingernail, right? But it's not actually doing anything. The finger is making the fingernail get the thing out of your tooth. So fingernails, unless they are being directed by another bone or, or muscle or something, they actually are pretty useless, right? They do have value, but they're... They protect your fingers, but they don't actively do anything. They, they are a protection, though, and that's good. But if you didn't have fingernails, you've seen people without fingernails? Yeah, there are people that don't have fingernails or a toenail, and the toe is fine. It doesn't need any more protection. They, they do serve a purpose, but you, you want to be a finger rather than a fingernail. Believe me on that, okay? You're, you're doing something active instead of passive, okay? Life application. We all have talents in our secular employment, which can be probably transferred to our Christian walk, okay? 
Is it right to satisfy ourselves with others outside the church with these talents while keeping them hidden from the body of Christ? Be willing to share your abilities within the church for the building up of others and the glorification of God. And I understand we got people that attend online that don't have any church where they are at all. So you can't do that. This is not to be a guilt trip. This is a general idea for people to say, I have this ability. I can use this. And what does Paul say? You know, there are all kinds. He's going to get to it in a little while um, as far as the different things that we can do. Some people are administrators and some people do this. Some people give. Some people are, you know, whatever. So there are different things that you can do. But if you have a talent that the church can use, bring it in. 12-6. But how do you know that no man? Um, well, I don't know. Because we're made. Oh, that's true. That makes sense. We're made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, we are there to fellowship because no man is an island. That's right. You've got that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is eternal fellowship. And so we are not an island. We're not fellowshipping with others. Good point. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion Here I am talking about what Paul's going to say, and this is he starts off the list right here, and he's going to go through the whole list. So didn't realize this would start in verse six. Anyway, Paul now takes what he has said concerning the body, excuse me, and he breaks it down into individual gifts according to the grace that God has given us. Okay, that's his words. Before reviewing the verse, a general analysis of gifts as given in the New Testament should be listed. The reason for this is that each list is given from a different outlook, okay? There's not just one list in Romans and that's it. You've got several lists of gifts. The first list is found here, Romans 12, six through eight. Seven specific gifts are noted and these are simply a wide range of gifts which are given either as a calling on the believer's life or a temporary impartation, but not the assign- but not assigned to any specific person, okay? The second list is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Once again, talking about the parts of the body, he lists the gifts there. They are not specifically gifts of Christ, as noted in the coming Ephesians list, but are manifestations of the Spirit, okay? In other words, they are not necessarily a calling for life work, but are temporary occurrences for the edification of the body. So there's a difference there, okay? But you don't want to say that this is my calling when it's actually not. And that's what people will do. And then you get into crazy churches. They have, you know, charismatic churches that do things that are not according to the intent of what that gift is, okay? However, towards the end of the chapter, offices such as that of the apostle and the teacher are seen. Okay, I'm going to stop right there before I get into the list in Ephesians. Just so that people understand this. People use the term apostle. Okay. Apostle simply means, does anybody know what the word? Thank you. Sent one. I knew Burke would get that. Apostle means sent one. If somebody says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, don't even bother with that guy because that means that Jesus Christ sent him. He commissioned him and he sent him out. There is absolutely no point at all in using the term apostle in a church today. There is zero point. Okay, because it causes confusion within the body. An apostle of Jesus Christ is a person that was commissioned by the Lord. Paul gives the the requirements for being apostle throughout his writings. One of them is that he has anybody seen the Lord. Has anybody, well, I better not because somebody's bound to say, oh yeah, I saw it, send me an email and now I had to talk to him yesterday. Okay, I'm sorry. 
we have not seen the Lord. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the Bible, um, where's the verse where he says, um, well, not just that, but um, there's a particular verse that uh, I had yesterday that absolutely is undeniable that nobody has seen the Lord. And I'll think of it in a minute. I'll, in the middle of another verse, I'll think of it. But anyway, um, it's a verse you wouldn't normally think of that. But it's like, oh, that's a very good point. Anyway, I'll get to it in a minute. It'll come back to me. Um, but uh, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ is not a good term to use. It means sent one. You can be a sent one from your church. We're apostles of the superior word. But why would you do that? Right? There's no point because yeah, self-importance. That's right. Especially when you see people on Facebook that say, they're, they're instead putting Charlie Garrett, they'll say Apostle Charlie Garrett or Pastor Charlie Garrett. I usually won't click friend when they send me a friend request because I don't have time for that. You know, they have a feeling of self-worth that is higher than it should be. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. Yeah. What's that? We covered that last oh, did we? Yes, we did. I don't you remember don't think that. Think of yourself more highly than oh, you want. Oh, there you go. Well, you covered it a minute ago, too. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, okay. So enough about apostles. I just wanted to show you that Paul has made these distinctions in 1 Corinthians 12, and it does not mean that they endure for the whole church age. There are apostles, there are prophet, uh, preachers, there are teachers, there are this and there are that, okay? But apostles is something that was particular for a time in the church. Not anymore. That's why I got into that for a second. The third list is recorded in Ephesians chapter 4. This list is that of individuals in their specific calling. Okay, so you see there are three different lists of gifts, and each one is different. You can't say, well, that's my gift, when it's actually something that's temporary, as Paul would describe there. Okay, so keep that in mind. We'll get through all of the lists here eventually, but we're in Romans chapter uh, 12 right now. So seeing the difference can help us from form a breakdown in our doctrine. The purpose of the list needs to be considered, and the gift itself needs to be viewed in that context. Gifts, regardless of whether they are general callings, manifestations, or specific offices, are, as Paul writes, according to the grace that is given us. God has given us the grace for each gift that we possess. It needs to be noted that the calling, as Paul says, gifts overlap in a great way with non-Christian vocations, something that people need to understand. The calling gifts will often overlap with non-Christian vocations. A person that's a great orator in the church, well, there's lots of great orators that aren't in the church, right? So your calling in the church may be a gift from God, but it's no different than what you might be doing in a secular job or somebody else might do better than you in a secular job. And there are all kinds of calling gifts that are like that, okay? There are people that are technical experts in the, uh, you know, what do you call it, computer field or whatever, electronics, okay? And we have Sergio that applies that within the church, okay? There's an overlap of the two. Some people are secular, some people devoted to the Lord, some people do both for their secular work and for the Lord, whatever. It's very important to understand that those sometimes are uh, overlap with non-Christian vocations. In both Christian and non-Christian venues, there are speakers. There are those who do administration. There are teachers. There are those who exhort, etc. All of those things happen both in the Christian world and in the secular world. Therefore, these gifts are formed from the makeup of the individual, whether Christian or not. Okay, everybody understand that? So when you say this is my gift as if it was given to me by God, well, of course it was. And it was given to the guy over there that right. is an atheist. He was given by God. He just doesn't acknowledge that it was given by God. Okay, 
There you go. Because of this, the use of the gift for the body is what makes it of value to the body. There are teachers all over the world, but they don't use their God-given gift for the body. There are even teachers who are Christians who don't use their gift for the body. Paul's list here is speaking of those who take their God-given gift and apply it to their Christian environment for Christian use. On the other hand, there are the manifestation gifts, such as healings and tongues. These are not callings, but are temporary impartations to meet particular needs or situations. That's why I've said this 10 million times. I'll say it again now. I do not believe in faith healers. I believe in faith healing. That's why we pray before every single time when we have people that have needs. We ask the Lord to hear our prayers for it. We have temporary impartations of those things. We do not have permanent faith healers. What we see on TV is absolute nonsense. And if you believe it's true, you've been duped. It's not scriptural, and it is, it's very profitable, though. I can tell you that. They live in big houses. They got a lot of money, and a lot of people just toss it in because they think, I'm going to earn his favor or something by doing that, whatever. But that is not what the Bible teaches, okay? It should be noted that there are those who claim such gifts in a variety of other religions. You've got healers in, you know, uh, voodoos, and you got uh, healers over shamans over in Africa. They claim the exact same things in religions all over the world, okay? Some Eastern religions, for example, speak in tongues in the same way that modern charismatic groups do. They speak in garbled, nonsensical noises. I had a neighbor when I was in Japan. I lived in Hamuramachi, and our neighbor two doors down was into Shokugai Buddhism. And she sounded exactly like what you hear at the charismatic churches all the time. Okay, well, it's just a form of Buddhism, and they speak in tongues. You would think you were walking by a charismatic church. Okay, that is nonsense. That is absolute nonsense. There are people that do this in religions all over the world. Okay, so be discerning. Be discerning. There are only three logical explanations for these type of tongues in churches then. One, they are faked by the speaker, they are inspired by Christ, or they are other than divine origin. Those are your only three options. They're faked, they're of Christ, or they are other than divine origin, meaning uh, uh, demonic, okay? The same is true with faith healers. There are charlatans within and without the body, fooling and deceiving for recognition or profit. The subject of manifestation gifts needs to be very, very carefully handled, and all such gifts must be taken in context of the prescriptive passages of the Bible, okay? Where is the prescriptive passages on tongues? It's in 1 Corinthians, right? Yeah, that's right. There, three or four may speak. There must be an interpreter, okay? Does that happen in 99.9997% of the charismatic churches? No. Everybody's speaking in tongues all over the place. If the Holy Spirit wrote this word, everybody got this logic? If he wrote this and he says that that is the requirement for tongues and it's happening in a church, other than the way it's written here, can it be of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. It cannot be. It is impossible because the Spirit will never contradict this word. This was breathed out by men of God, by the Holy Spirit, through men of God. It cannot be that what you see in those churches and on TV is of God. If you see a preacher, which you see all the time, just type in tongues, preacher speaking in tongues on YouTube, and you'll get a hundred of them. People stand there and they're going, shoo, bop, blop, bloop, bloop. He's not translating anything. He's got nobody uh, 
It cannot be of God because Paul has given us. So if you call them out on it, what do they say? No, they don't hold to this anyway, so it doesn't matter. I'm telling you, I have talked to charismatics in the past and get into a debate with them on on uh, Facebook sometime. I'm sure you have a couple times, no? But if you do, they completely dismiss the Bible. It is as if the authority comes from the church and it's like, whatever. It, it, it is very sad because this must be held to or it's not of, it is not of God. It cannot be if this is true. And that's what I'm, my premise in teaching from this book is that this is the infallible word of God. It is inerrant. It is without error. Okay, everybody got that has no no error in it. If that is the case and something happens in a church which, which does not match this, it cannot be of God. Now that hurts a lot of people's sensibilities because they grew up in a charismatic church or whatever. It doesn't matter if it hurts their feelings. All that matters is what this book teaches. And if I teach it wrong, then somebody, Burke always calls me out, well, you said this or that, right? He's very good about that. That's what you're supposed to do. We should never say something that is not correct about this word, okay? So um, where are we there? Yeah, faked, uh, faked by the speaker, they're inspired of Christ or they're other than divine origin. Faith healers, the same things, okay? The subject, I know I've read this, of manifestation gifts needs to be very carefully handled and all such gifts must be taken in the proper prescriptive passages in context. Using descriptive verses from Acts to justify such gifts will inevitably, without any doubt at all, it will inevitably lead to confused theology. And that is where they go for much of their doctrine is from Acts, which is simply describing what happened in the early church as an establishment, as a sign to the Jewish people. They're always happening around Jews. Jews demand a... Sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. wisdom, but I preach Christ. Christ crucified. Okay. Jews want a sign. God gave them the sign. They rejected him. The sign didn't do any good in the end. Okay. But that was what happened in the early church. It does not happen anymore. It does not. Okay. There you go. You got confused theology and you have a misuse of these same gifts by using Acts in a prescriptive manner because it's not prescriptive. In the coming list in Romans, because of the nature of the gift, mentally inserting the term, let us use, prior to reading each gift, will help keep that gift in the intended context. Okay, I'm not saying to add into scripture, I'm just saying mentally, use, let us use. Okay, Paul's list now begins with prophecy. Prophecy is the uttering forth of God's word. It can be in writing or it can be verbal. We know that from the Old Testament. The prophet wrote or the prophet spoke, okay? No true prophecy will ever, ever contradict scripture. Prophecy can be reasonably divided into two types. Anybody know what they are? Foretelling, thus says the Lord, like Jeremiah did, or forthtelling. I come up here every Sunday and I preach and it's from the Bible and I am prophesying. I'm forthtelling the word of God. I'm not prophesying something new i'm saying what this is saying i'm explaining it to you that is forthtelling prophecy okay forthtelling involves or foretelling involves the speaking forth god's word under the direct inspiration of the holy spirit and which reveals god's intent for a situation insights previously unknown the revelation of future events etc it is god directly speaking through a person in the communication of his word this type of prophecy ended with the word amen. amen at the end of Revelation. 
It ended. We do not have foretelling prophecy anymore. I'm sorry. The word is written. It is done. I do not believe in foretelling prophecy. If you do, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you over it. I do not agree. And as I said last class, if you want to teach that, go ahead and start your own class. I do not believe in foretelling prophecy. I don't think it's proper. We don't need it. We have everything that we have. This is sufficient for our life and doctrine. If we have foretelling prophecy in the church today, why? What do we need to add to this? You tell me what prophecy somebody has given in the past 2,000 years, which has had a bearing on the church, which is sufficient to be added into this word. Not one. Not one in 2,000 years. This is sufficient. That's all we need. Okay? So if you disagree, that's fine. Just disagree. But I, I, you're not going to change my mind on that issue ever. The word is written. It is given. It ended with amen. It was something used up to and through the apostolic age and which ended after that. God has spoken. That's why Paul says that we have the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And then he says in Corinthians 3, I think, he says the foundation is, the, yeah, but, he said, but he calls it the prophets and the apostles. Why did he do that? Are there two foundations? No. It's the word of the prophets and the apostles which spoke of Christ. And so he is the foundation. Even though he calls here the prophets and the apostles the foundation, and he says that Christ is the foundation here, there is no contradiction if you think it through. What they spoke was of Christ. And it's done. They have spoken. We have the word of Christ. So it's done. Okay? Going on. Um, let's see here. Um, where was I? misuse of these same gifts oh yeah i'm down in prophecy way down at the bottom here okay so um it's uh his intended uh read it again the list intent for a situation insights into the previous unknown the revelation of future events okay those things we no longer do god has spoken forth telling that's the second type of prophecy is speaking of god's word as it has been revealed it is preaching teaching and exhortation in what has been received from god as revealed in the pages of scripture. As noted above, like foretelling, foretelling will never contradict the written word if it is done properly. People can foretell and do it wrong, but it will never contradict the written word. Extreme care must be taken by preachers and teachers to carefully and competently explain God's word to his people. What does it say in James 3.1? Jim, I'm sorry, Burke, maybe you know too. Yeah. Uh... Not many of you. What's that? Brethren, not many of you should purpose to be teachers. That's right. Knowing that you will receive the greater judgment. Exactly. That's right. So they what? The more loose in my translation. Yeah, you've got a bigger target. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's what you were saying. I wasn't sure. I thought you were saying that I was picking on you because you're bigger than him. Okay. All right. That, that was very well said. That was a very good paraphrase. Okay. We'll go with that. Okay, so I'm going to read that last sentence again. Extreme care must be taken by preachers and teachers to carefully and competently explain God's word to his people. Doctrine does matter. In the end, the gifts listed in the Bible must have the ultimate purpose of glorifying Christ. This includes foretelling the word of God. If it doesn't glorify Christ, then it is not a gift of God that is being used properly by God. Okay, life application. One of the most sensitive matters found in the church is the subject of gifts. 
Okay, I'm sure I've offended 10 people already in here today. I'm sorry if I have. Actually, I'm not. This is what I believe. So anyway, the reason for the sensitive nature isn't because it's confusing, but because believers are confused. Big difference there. Context and right evaluation concerning gifts will lead to the sound interpretation of what gifts apply, when they apply, and to whom they apply. Okay, as long as we understand that. It is not confusing, but believers are confused, all right? And I'm not saying that I know everything about Scripture. I'd be the last person on the planet to tell you that because I type sermons every Monday, and I think, oh, I've read this 800 times, and I never realized that before. It, it isn't, and you know what? And then I'll give a sermon on a passage, and three weeks later, somebody will be talking about it on Moody, and he'll say something that I had never thought of. And I think I can't go back and redo that sermon, but I am so embarrassed that I missed something so obvious. You spend eight hours on six verses and you read every single word and you think every possible thing that could ever be drawn out of it. And then you hear something so obvious that it's like you just got hit with a pan on your head. The word of God is endless. It is endless. I'm telling you, we will never all have it. 12-7. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. Okay, adding to the list from Romans 12, verse 6, two more designations of service are named in this verse. The first is ministry. The word translated as ministry is, does anybody know what it is? Diaconia. Okay, there you go. Well, yeah, I just forgot think of a word that sounds like it. Deacon. Deacon. Okay, there you go. Diaconia. This is from the word where we, we receive the title deacon. Very good. A deacon in the church fulfills an office of ministry, and it is also a designation of that office. Unfortunately, the sense of being a deacon is often elevated to something other than its original intent, which is humble service of any kind have you been to a church you know especially the smaller churches where somebody walks up and says i'm the deacon here yeah you, you've been there you've seen that it should never be that way even a pastor shouldn't walk up and say i'm the pastor you know you know hi i'm charlie that's it okay all right if they ask well yeah i'm the pastor whatever but there's no point in exalting yourself on something like that they'll figure out who you are when you get up there to preach okay the deacon when they say you know would you go do this lowly job and he gets up and says you're also a show okay so that's what a deacon is does anybody know where the word deacon comes from it's two different greek words dia ever six <laughs> Yeah, Act 6, okay. What? Dia with God. Dia means, no, no, that's uh, Latin. Dia is Greek for diameter. Remember we went through this a couple weeks ago? Dia, through, okay? And the word kones. Anybody know what kones is? Dust. He's a guy that scurries through the dust. A deacon is a guy that runs through the dust. He does the dirty jobs. Everybody got that? A deacon is a guy that does the dirty jobs. It's not some exalted position. Yeah, I, I'm He's not serving. A deacon in any church that does dirty jobs. Well, there you go. But that's what it means. A deacon is a person that goes through the dust, okay? In other words, the deacon is one who serves. And as he scurries about his duties, he kicks up the dust around him. That's the idea. But there is also the biblical connotation that man was made from the dust right and so the deacon is the servant of all men do you see that everybody got that god is making pictures of words that he has chosen for different things in the bible and if you know the words and the root of those words it always takes you back to something else he not only is somebody that scurries through the dust but he's also a person that serves the people made of the dust okay if then there would be an office which resembles christ as the servant 
going so far as to wash the dusty feet of his dust-made creatures, it would be the deacon. It is to be considered an office of humility and service, not authority and power. He is to be Christ's courier of service to the people of the world and for the body of Christ. See, knowing the root of a word actually gives you a picture of something that is completely ignored in most churches. However, the term, as used in Romans 12, verse 7, although aligning with this analysis is probably intended more for the office of the ministry rather than the designation of that office, okay? Stated differently, it is not specifying a title, but speaking of the overall effects of ministering, that of service. Those who hold the gift of ministry, let them minister. The second office is teacher. The Greek word is didasko. Anybody think of uh, something that that sounds like? Didasko, okay? It literally implies to cause to learn, okay? A dialectic teaching, for example, or right, whatever, okay? Cause to learn. Hence, it involves the instruction and imparting of knowledge and information so that others will grow through that instruction. Okay, that's what we're doing here. We're not having a preaching session. We're having a teaching session. Okay, it's a little bit different. All right, in the New Testament, the word didasko is found in three separate noun forms, one verb, and in the form of two different adjectives, which total over 200 uses. Of these, almost every instance is speaking of instruction in, no, in the Word of God, including righteousness, but it, those are almost all included in the Word of God, okay, whether it's righteousness, whether it's serving, whether whatever it is, the, it is referring specifically to something within the Word of God, okay, so. Uh, let's see here where I was. Oh, there. Okay. Um, of these, almost every instance is speaking of the instruction in the word of God. This then is certainly what Paul is referring to here. The right instruction for the proper application of scripture. Albert Barnes notes, and here's what he says. The churches in New England had at first a class of people who were called teachers. One was appointed to this office in every church, distinct from the pastor whose proper business it was to instruct the congregation in the doctrines of religion. This has continued in large part since that time, but it shows that the original believers who came to America had the intent not only of bringing their denominational faith with them, but also ensuring that the word was taught in the expectation that the faithful were not just blind adherents to the denomination but were people who were expected to know what they believed and why they believed it. Those who hold the office of teacher, let them teach, okay? Everybody got that? That's why we're here. And I keep saying again and again, this is as important as any other duty that you have in a church is to sit and be instructed or to instruct if you're properly instructed, okay? I can't think of anything that's more important in a church. We worry about who's going to clean the coffee machine or who's going to do that. We don't have a coffee machine for the people online. Say, yeah, but, yeah we're, I haven't been getting the coffee. Anyway, we, we worry about way too many things that are unimportant. Getting people to know Jesus and getting them trained in doctrine about Jesus are the most important things you're ever going to do in a church. Everything else is secondary to that. Now, I understand we're in Florida and it's 95 degrees in the day. And if the air conditioner goes out, we got a problem. Okay, that people aren't going to want to learn or they're going to fall asleep trying to learn. 
Okay, so there are important things within the church to keep the church functioning pro properly. But if you go down to uh, my favorite place in all of Sarasota, which is, anybody know where it is? Come on, you know, Spanish Point, right? Right, you pass it every single day. If you go to Spanish Point and you walk around, I always take visitors to Spanish Point. It's my favorite place in Sarasota. And you get to the end of it before you leave because you've walked for, you know, two, three, four, five miles, whatever it is. The last thing that you will see is... Mary's Chapel, oh, right? Well, that's right. But if you go the, the normal way okay. and you come out at the end at Mary's Chapel, yes. okay, yeah. they had no air conditioning in Mary's no Chapel, air. right? It has a high roof. It's a little wooden building with wooden pews. Yeah. It actually sits more people than this church. It's really small though, isn't it? Yeah. But it's it's. I have to tell you what, those people went to church in the heat yeah. back then and they didn't care. And we are so spoiled here over things. I'm not going to church because the air, air conditioner is out, right? Whatever reason we find for not attending church or not studying the word is not a good excuse when you look at what people have gone through in the past in order to learn the word of God. Anyway, that's just my little my little thing about that. I, Mary's Chapel is just beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's been rebuilt. You do know that it caved in after years of neglect and they rebuilt it and it's beautiful now. And you can you can actually use it. We could have a service down there. Yeah, you could go down or you could get married, whatever. It, it is there for use. Anyway, life application. Uh, are you gifted with the ability to minister to others? Then minister in a manner and form which is honoring to Christ. Have you been gifted as a teacher? If so, before you teach, read and take to heart James 3 verse 1, which we cited earlier. Brothers, not many of you should presume to be teachers knowing that you will receive the stricter judgment. That may be a little bit of a misquote, but that's it. Understand that your job is of the highest importance for the continued doctrine of those you teach. Being negligent in such a high calling will have negative effects beyond your own judgment, but can also lead others into sad avenues of confusion. Just go on Facebook and read posts from people, and you will see how confused Christians are out there. It, 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 it's horrifying. But, verse 12:8. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, then do it cheerfully. Okay, mine's a little different, so I'm going to read it. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. It's close, but the first one especially was a little different. Okay, 12.8. Paul's list of services is complete with verse 8. In this verse are four gifts which can be offered by those within the church. The first is he who exhorts. Exhortation is different than teaching. Teaching is tied to, what is it tied to? I said it a minute ago. Information. Information, specifically in the church we would call it, begins with a D, ends with doctrine. <laughs> doctrine, that's right, thank you. Okay, but you're right, information which is doctrine, that is teaching, okay? Tied into doctrine with the faith, whereas exhortation is tied to the practical application of faith. Teaching then leads to exhortation. One must be properly taught the faith in order to properly practice the faith. Orthodoxy, and this is going to sound a little crazy, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. You have right orthodox instruction, you will apply that properly, proper uh, application of doctrine. So orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. As this is considered by Paul as a separate function and gift, it implies that it is a different office. Thus, in a church, there are counselors, 
Some churches have marriage counselors, financial counselors, and so on. They're not really teachers in doctrine, but rather they are those who teach in related practice. But if you don't know the doctrine, then your counsel is going to be incorrect. Everybody got that one? That's why orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. If you have a crummy Christian counselor, you're not going to get good Christian counseling, okay? They should be grounded in the doctrine, and they should be able to give instruction to others in how to apply the principles. So that's exhortation? Exhortation, yes. When what you just said, it's kind of like helping people understand yes how to properly apply the doctrines of the church so you're not really teaching doctrine you're telling them how to apply that doctrine in whatever way okay isn't, isn't that like um with the uh, the old testament there's commands right and then the new testament there's exhortation yes but there are more than just commands in the old testament you've got well, commands I understand in, that, yeah. but like but like that that division there it's like you know um every Every, every one of the commandments except for um, the Sabbath is repeated at some point. In the New Testament. It's not given as a command. That's right. But as an exhortation. Exhortation. That, that's a really good example there because that's true. They are commands in the Old Testament, and yet in the New Testament, they're commands, but they're more an exhortation than an actual command. We're not supposed to do this. You're not going to lose your salvation if you do one of those things. I hate to tell you that. We are not under law. We are under grace. grace. And what does it say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19? Okay. I read it again last week, I'm sure, two weeks ago. It's really important to understand this because you brought up a point about the law. And these things are commanded in the Old Testament. Guess what? In 2 Corinthians 5, um, uh, verse 19, it says that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Some versions say not, not counting men's sins against them. In other words, in the Old Testament, you are commanded to not kill. Okay, guess what? I hate to say this because somebody's going to go ballistic with their email. Well, murder. Yes, thank you. You're not to murder. Okay, but even in the New Testament, if you murder somebody, that does not end your salvation. Okay, everybody got that? You're exhorted to not kill people or murder people. Okay, we're not to do that. But God is not counting men's sins against them. Why? Because we're not under law. We're under grace. If there's no law, then sin cannot be imputed. Okay, I know that sounds scary when you think it through, but if you think it through properly, it shows you the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. Because every one of us, what does it say in James? It says that if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken the law. Well, that means that if you've murdered or if you've told a little white lie, it is the same thing. The law is broken. But God is not imputing men their sins. He's not counting men's sins against them. We are not under law. Yes, thank you, Lord. That's the whole point. We are to be grateful for the salvation we have. People take all kinds of things and they say, well, that guy can't be saved. He killed somebody. Well, guess what? You told a lie, and he said the, that if you've broken one, you've broken the whole thing. Think it through properly. Christ has forgiven us. In Christ, we are forgiven. Don't do those things. Don't lie. Don't white lie. Don't black lie. Whatever that means, don't do it. But also, don't murder people, okay? When you do things like that, who is the one that will suffer? You will. You're the one that's going to jail. You're the one that's going to Old Sparky, etc. okay? You were asked to not do that. You're given doctrine to tell you not to do it, and then you're given instruction to show you how to apply that to your life. No, 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 that's not right. Don't, you know, whatever. Okay. So anyway, 
uh, let's see here, they should be able to give instruction to others how they apply the principles. Often these offices will overlap somewhat and a lead pastor should be able to combine them in ways which will make the most beneficial use of imparting the word of God, particularly in his sermons. A sermon that doesn't include an analysis of the scripture is not really a sermon, okay? And I, I don't mean to pick on people when you go to a church where they don't bring in the Bible, but when they talk to you about how good life is supposed to be in Christ and this and that, it's not really a sermon. A sermon is it to be based on, as we saw earlier, it's to be based on this, the word of God. This is what your doctor, if you know this, then you are going to take this and apply it to your life. If somebody tells you to, you know, this and this and this and this, you can go out and you can go to a secular guy in a business and he'll tell you exactly the same thing. All they do is just add in the word Jesus once in a while, or maybe they'll add in God or something. Listen to them. Listen to people in a secular thing that's a motivational speaker, and then listen to somebody that does that in Christianity. And all they do is add in the word Jesus and you get exactly the same thing. It must be based on evaluation of the word of God. It, it, it must be. Okay. So, um, a sermon that doesn't include an analysis of scripture is not really a sermon. However, there should also be encouragement within the sermon, which I tried and he calls it throwing him a bone, right? <laughs> Burke uses, throw him a bone, you know? Anyway, there should be encouragement within the sermon about the application of the analysis. I usually give two minutes of that at the beginning, <laughs> one minute at the end, and the rest is all Bible. What's and that may there? not be the best way, but that's the way I do it. What's in there is encouraging. Yeah, well, hopefully. Hopefully it'll be encouraging. You know, even, I mean, we went through the dietary laws of Leviticus, and I think it was encouraging. It was. I mean, it was astonishing what God has in the dietary laws. It all, every word of it points to Jesus. You know, I'm going through that, and I'm reading, and I'm thinking, that is astonishing. It just, anyway, so I, thank you for saying that, because I'm glad to hear that. Anyway, um, uh, however, there should be encouragement within the sermon. This exhort, thus, exhortation is a valuable asset, not only for specific circumstances in life, but in general applications of how to live life. Those who hold the gift of exhortation, let them exhort with zeal. Next, Paul speaks of he who gives. The term is, and I can't, meta, yeah, metadidus. And some feel this actually bears the notion of distributing the money possessed by the church. This is considered because the other gifts are more office-centered rather than individually expressed gifts. However, however, others disagree and state that it is speaking of the giving by individuals. Everybody see the difference? Some say that this uh, points to the church and how it disperses the money the church has. Others say it points to the individual and how they're supposed to give to the church. The latter is probably more likely. Though other gifts and offices are within the body, they are possessed individually and expressed in the office. And the same is true here. The individual gives, okay? So it's a gift of the individual being expressed towards the church. Each person who gives is a part of the office of finances but their giving is an individual expression. To support this, Paul says that those who give should do so with liberality. The term is haploteti, and it denotes sincerity, simplicity, or purity. Giving is to be done with all of these thoughts in mind, sincerity, simplicity, and purity, okay? We should be sincere in giving, not hoping for some type of return. We should also be simple in our giving, without any complication. A good way to explain this is to give without strings attached, okay? 
Some people will put something in the, the church box at a church and they'll say, I want this to go specifically to this. Unless it is, we're having something for mission specifically, you shouldn't, you know, just give it without strings attached, okay? Some people do, some people don't. It's your choice, it's your money. You don't have to give it all. There's nothing, you know, my friend, he loves to stir the pot. He's on Facebook every day and he gives very good questions. And today he gave one on, are people supposed to tithe or not? Oh boy, I went ballistic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, I went ballistic on that one. But well, here's here's what I did. I typed up the whole explanation, and then I went back and I read all the comments. And guess what? My friend Alex, he's Alex Wong. He had already said Charlie Garrett's done a great sermon on this. Watch that. And so anyway, it was, so I didn't have to do anything. But it, uh, it just it, it make my ears are red right now just thinking of it. Anyway. Um, our gift is for the church, and when the gift is given, it should no longer be wielded by the giver, and it should be given with purity. Our hearts should be grateful for the opportunity to give, and the gift should come without the giver having been pressured, okay? That's one thing that I, you know, I, I won't say who, but somebody that used to attend this church who passed away. Anyway, she really got upset at one church for the way that they, they pressured her. And I, I, I think of that all the time because this girl lived on a on a string and to pressure somebody in that is just not right. OK, anyway, for those who are able to and who are blessed with the gift of giving, let them give with liberality. The next gift concerns leading and what a gift this is, whether in the church or out of the church, true leaders are usually easily identifiable. There have been many presidents, but few were natural leaders. There are those who can discern the structure of human interaction and use it in marvelous ways to accomplish great feats. Within the church, sub, such people may work behind the scenes and yet make great advances for the furtherance of the church through their leadership abilities. This is the sort that leads with true humility and doesn't lord his ability over others, okay? Instead, he understands that he is a participant with a unique skill. There are lead pastors who are great leaders, and there are lead pastors who understand the quality of great leaders, even if they don't personally possess that quality. Either way, the effective use of leadership is a great asset and an immense blessing for a church. The person who is so gifted is instructed to use his leadership abilities in a tireless, careful, and attentive way. When so handled, the aims and goals of the church will always be the prime target and the devoted focus of the leader. He who leads, let him lead with diligence. And finally, Paul finishes the list with he who shows mercy. There are those who have physical ailments who need care lavished upon them. There are those who are weak in the faith and need grace and building up rather than condemnation and accusation. There are those who have addictions and who need help with them, not scoffing because of them. They don't need a demeaning attitude from others, but empathy and direction. A miserable drunk who comes to church has come because he is a miserable drunk. Without mercy, he will only stay a miserable drunk. With care of, now, I will say this, there are some miserable drunks that come to church looking for a handout. And there are people that do that. They travel around the, the country and they ask people for money in churches. Well, I'm broken down here. They, you know, so you have to be wise and discerning. Don't get me wrong. Okay, you have to be wise and discerning. But without mercy, that miserable drunk is only going to stay drunk. With care, affection, and mercy, and prayer, he can become a valuable asset in the church, okay? 
Churches like Church in the Park were very good at that. They're not there anymore. There's something else there, which I have no idea what they do. But that's what they, they minister in areas where people are drunks, where people are drug addicts, where people are prostitutes. And that is their mission and their calling. Some churches may never come across that ever. Okay, they'll certainly come across the people that come in and say, I broke down and I need $300, right? And they live off of that. But you got to be wise. You got to be discerning. Anyway, um, showing mercy requires tact. And it also requires the ability to not be snookered. For the person who is able to show mercy, let him do so with cheerfulness. Life application. No person is fully proficient in all of the gifts mentioned by Paul. But each of us can strive to become more competent in every office. For those with a particular gift, it is only right that they step forward and exercise it. Not for self-glory, but for the glory of the Lord. Chris, I need you to walk three doors down and ask them why they're not here. Okay, would you do that? Uh, yes, um, we gotta we got to stop now anyway, because we don't have time to do another verse. There's no way we're going to fit in the next eight minutes. So we're going to stop, but I need Chris to walk down there and just tell them, hey, we're supposed to have this 10 minutes ago. And I wanted to get the smell of you. I wanted you guys to suffer through 10 minutes of pizza smell. But anyway, let me... Uh, somebody else had showed mercy. Somebody showed mercy, yeah. Somebody down there, not a member of the church, showed mercy on your tummies. Anyway, uh, let's say a prayer. Let's thank the Lord for his goodness, and we'll have some pizza. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to uh, open your word and to read it. I would pray that the, the context has been proper today, that what has been said is appropriate, and that we haven't deviated from your word. If we have, I would pray that you would show us that. Lead us to a right and sound interpretation of each and every verse that we come across. And Lord, we certainly pray for those people that were mentioned at the beginning of this this. Uh, of meeting and we would ask that you would bless them meet their needs heal them if it's your will and if it's not help them to understand that you are sovereign over their even their illnesses and uh we'll be sure to praise you through them or to get around them and to be healed and to be springing around in handsprings once again and lord we love you we praise you we exalt you and we do so in jesus beautiful name amen, amen. amen. all right let me back up the uh so what's the uh uh, no occasion. It just it was pizza day. It's it's pizza day. Oh, there it is, right there. She's already got it. Um, okay, here we're gonna go to break. We got it back. To